Let us hear the word of God as it's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. May God bless through our heart this reading of his holy word. We were led in our second lesson and in the offertory prayer by the Reverend Bert Gartrell, the father of Gordon and Virginia Gartrell, two very important people on our Montreat Anderson College campus. The Gartrells are missionaries supported by the Montreat Church in Brazil. They are home on furlough, and it's a great privilege to have Bert with us. Thank you, Bert. I remember when I was a student in college being challenged to Christian discipleship and searching my own heart to determine whether church membership was just enough or whether just lip service to Jesus was enough or whether something really was not missing that meant that he had to be Lord, really Lord of my life. About this time, someone placed in my hands a copy of a book by Chad Walsh. It was a book first about the apostle to the skeptics, whose name was C.S. Lewis, a man who could out-reason and out-think a great many atheists and agnostics. This caused me to want to read more of Chad Walsh, and so I read another book of Chad Walsh, called The Early Christians of the 21st Century. In this, he stirred me into thinking some about discipleship with these words, and they're so important that I want to read them to you as a direct quotation. Millions of Christian lives, millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music, trembling in lovely light from stained glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing of emotional quivers, divorced from the will, divorced from the intellect, demanding little except lip service to a few harmless platitudes. I suppose that Satan has called off his attempt to convert people to atheism. After all, if a man travels far enough away from Christ, he is liable to see, it in, see him in perspective and decide that what he has said is true. It is much safer from Satan's viewpoint to vaccinate a man with a mild case of Christianity and so protect him from the real disease. Now what Chad Walt says is true. If there is one thing that the younger generation cannot tolerate nor abide in any of us and in themselves, it is phoniness. And when we look for men of God, we look for people who are not plastic, who are not unreal, but for people who are true. 
When you turn to the pages of the Old Testament, you find this startling man, Elijah. We are told that he is Elijah the Tishbite, but we are none the wiser for all of that. For all that we know about him, he might have just fallen out of heaven. In fact, Elijah was so famous among the Jews, his name appears over a hundred times in the Bible. Elijah was so famous that they fancied him not even a man, but as some kind of angel because of the miracles that he worked and the utter boldness and fearlessness of this man. And Elijah is a particularly suitable figure for us to think about, especially today, when a great many people have pointed out that the age in which we are now passing is one of great apathy in America, where we need to be stirred up. And here comes this prophet of God who saw his own country debauched into sensuality and pornography and evil of every description and idolatry. And his name is called Elijah. And the word itself, the name of the man is itself significant. There are two great Hebrew words for God, Elohim. This means the creating force of all of the universe. And Jehovah, the personal guiding hand of God leading his people. And Elijah's name is a combination of these two words, Elohim and Jehovah, put into a combination that means Jehovah is my God. Now here is a man with no phoniness about him. He had problems, yes, but phoniness, no. He is a man for real. What do you really want most in life? Whatever you find the most pleasure in talking about, whatever you find the greatest zest in pursuing, whatever satisfaction, the greatest satisfaction you have in obeying, that is your God. The simplest definition of God for you is what you live for. What do you live for? Here is a man who said, I live for God. And he came out to prove it to an apostate people that had fallen away, who did not take the commandments seriously, and who had erected for themselves gods of pleasure and success and wealth. And he comes to speak to this group of people. He comes suddenly upon the scene. Then Elijah the prophet from Tishbe and Gilead told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, the God whom I worship and serve, there will be no dew nor rain for three years until I say the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Cherith Brook. Here is a man who brings a word of judgment to an apostate king who had led his people in evil. And suddenly in the midst of this great public ministry, God tells his prophet, go hide yourself, Elijah. You've said your word to these people. And so he goes in obedience to that commandment out into a deserted, remote area by the brook Cherith. And here we read one of the strangest of all of the miracles in the Bible. For God told Elijah to go hide himself by the brook Cherith at the place east of where it enters the Jordan, drink from the brook, and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to feed you. Now there have been a great many ingenious explanations for trying to explain away the ravens feeding Elijah. 
One of them is that the Hebrew vowel points were misplaced and it actually means Aaron. I was telling this to one of my boys the other night and he said Arabs feeding Jews is so unlikely that I think the Bible is true. <laughs> he might have had a point. <laughs> but th this is what happened. Elijah in obedience to God goes and when you obey God, God puts you to a test. And so here the test of his faith comes. He goes and a great famine moves in upon this land. Elijah had predicted this famine because God was, was going to bring judgment upon these people because they had turned from him. And there the ravens come to feed him. Now the point of this whole story for you and for me is that if Jehovah is our God, if Jesus is really Lord of our lives, if we are in obedience to him, God Almighty is working to sustain and to prosper us. Not always in the way the world seeks prosper, prosperity, but he is guarding and protecting us. Jesus said that not even the fifth little sparrow would fall to the ground except your heavenly Father takes notice of him. When I think about this, I put the title of this sermon, Here Come the Ravens, because Elijah must have looked forward each day to the ravens coming in the morning and the ravens coming in the evening to feed him, to bring him flesh, and to bring him bread, to sustain him. But he was obeying God and God was protecting him. You see, in every time of great apostasy, you will find a flurry of miracles in the Bible. You will find it uh, when Moses, for instance, is leaving Egypt. There, God seeks to demonstrate that he will bring his people out of bondage and in spectacular signs, he shows to Pharaoh that Pharaoh is not really king and lord of the universe, but that God can deliver his people and so miracles take place. You will find here in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha Miracles take place. If God is, there is the God of miracles. I read this little book last week, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, and I couldn't help but wish that I could write like Richard Bach and that I could come up with a book about the ravens because I've known some wonderful ravens. Now, you wouldn't believe that from the surface, but I really have. Let me just begin with some personal things and then I'll apply it a little later on. I remember as a boy in East Texas being very poor and going off to college and how afraid I was when I left to go off to college. I remember I didn't have much money and I took my suitcase and I walked out on that hot September day and started to hitchhike 440 miles out into West Texas. I stood out on the side of the road and I had inside my pocket an envelope, an envelope that had been delivered to me by a raven whose name was Rachel Faber. Rachel was my Sunday school teacher. She even reminded me of a raven. She had very dark hair, dark complexion. She came by the house on the day before I was to leave and she handed me an envelope, and written on the envelope, it said, do not open this until you're 24 hours away from town. I remembered wondering about that envelope. 
I remembered wondering about some fees that I had to pay when I arrived at the school. And I opened that envelope, and there were two of the most beautiful $20 bills you ever saw. <laughs> Crisp, brand new. She must have gone to the bank to get them. And I never have felt so rich in my life as I did that day that I looked at those two $20 bills and thought about what I had to do. Now, I had prayed, and God had heard my prayers, not in the same powerful, miraculous sense, perhaps, as Elijah had demonstrated to him, but in a sense where his servants had obeyed him and he had demonstrated his concern and care for me. And if I should open the floor and if you could hear everyone here give a testimony, it would be amazing to you at how many people could stand and give testimony to how God Almighty had sent ravens to meet their need at some time or other in the form of this material help. When I think of schools and colleges that have come close to closing, you could almost form a raven's club of people who have come to meet needs at a critical time. I remember reading Dr. Um, Harry Ironside, who was a great preacher. Dr. Ironside was a great supporter of Dallas Theological Seminary out in Dallas, Texas. And there is a verse in the Bible that says, uh, that has God speaking, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. And Dallas Seminary once came to the place where it couldn't meet its bills and its creditors were moving in. They were about to foreclose and take over. And on the very day in which it was to have been forced into bankruptcy, Dr. Lewis Sperry Schaefer met with Dr. Harry Ironside and the members of the faculty. They went into Dr. Schaefer's office and they got out on their knees to pray. Dr. Schaefer had left words with his secretary not to be disturbed that they were going to be prayed. Harry Ironside, in his simple, characteristic way, said, Lord, the cattle on a thousand hills are yours. Sell some cattle and help us out. Well, <laughs> at the very time that they were in that room praying, a tall, lean Texan came into the office of the seminary and the little secretary came out to see him. He was a wonderful Christian man and he said to her, he said, you know, I sold three carloads of cows in Fort Worth. And he said, I thought I had a business deal that I was going to make a lot of money on, and it fell through. And it just seemed like to me that God was telling me to do something good with this money, so I thought I'd bring it and give it to the seminary. I don't know if you need it or not. <laughs> she took the check and walked back and knocked on the door. And there was a little slowness before people came to the door and finally Dr. Schaefer, a little bit disturbed that he had been interrupted to the prayer, came to the door and the secretary presented him with a check. And Dr. Schaefer looked in the corner and noticed the bank was in Fort Worth and he noticed the name of the man who was a prominent rancher and he turned around to Harry Ironside and he said, Harry, God sold the cattle. <laughs> <laughs> he had provided for his servant in a time of need. He had provided for his servant in the time of need. Right here on this campus, some wonderful things have taken place and take place practically every week. Hardly a week goes by, but what someone does not wish to, to be a raven. And that's a part of our responsibility too, to be of assistance to someone else. 
And uh, I remember very well a group of students one summer, during the summer crew. They vary from year to year. You have different people from different years. And we had a young boy, the first time I met him, he came back to my office. I remember he was trembling and he would light one cigarette with the one he was throwing away. He was very nervous. And uh, we talked about God and we talked about his faith in Jesus Christ. He had never made a commitment, but that day he made a commitment of his life to the Lordship of Christ. I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I don't have any money to go to school. I said, would you be willing to work? He said, yes. I went back to our dean of the college at that time, Dean Stockton, and I said, George, we've got to get some money. I said, we have a student whose people have been missionaries uh, in our church for years in China, and he has come to me, and he wants to get back in school. He served four years in the Navy. I told him about him. George said, I don't know where the money's going to come from. But he said, you go line him up. We'll work out something. Well, the first little miracle came, and we got him in school, and he washed dishes over in the cafeteria. He began to show up at prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. Then he began to grow in his Christian faith. We took long walks all the way up to Mount Mitchell, and he would ask me the profoundest questions about the Bible, and then he began to develop into a simple, childlike dependence upon God for his day-by-day existence, one that put me to shame. Finally, he had finished his academic work here, and I said, Hampton, what are you going to do with your life now? And he said, well, I, I feel that God wants me to become a minister. And he said, I'm going to take a Greek course that will qualify me to enter school. There is a a Columbia Seminary is offering a New Testament Greek course, and I want to go take this Greek to prepare myself for the ministry. And so the day came that he was to leave uh, to go and take this Greek course, and he came by my study. He was working here in the summertime. And he came by my study, and he said, you know, my grandmother has rented the place where I've been staying And he said, I moved my stuff out on the porch so the people who are coming in can take the place. And he said, I've been meeting with a little prayer group every day, and we were sure that God was going to send me the money to go off to school, and it didn't come in today. And he said, I've already been to the post office twice. And he said, this is the first time. And I said that that the Lord uh, seems to be turning his back on my prayer. And I tried to rationalize it. I said, well, wait, maybe he means for you to stay here and work the rest of the summer, not go to take this Greek course. And he said, but it would be so much better if I could take the Greek, I'd be qualified, and then I could go on, uh, on the seminary course. And I couldn't argue with that because what he was saying was correct. And so I, I said, well, let's pray about it. And we got out on our knees back here in the back, and we prayed. And he left, and I called up a couple of ravens, and uh, they had gone to Europe. They flew a long way. <laughs> they, they were people that always come through when I need it. And uh, so I called my wife, and we tried to figure out how on, on our money we could be the Ravens, and we didn't have it. I'd had a check go in orbit, and I had to go cover that. And uh, so I, I, um, I couldn't be the Raven. God doesn't want that kind of Raven. And uh, so um, I prayed again, and my wife said, you had a telephone call last night from Clarence Gordon, and I hope Clarence is listening on the radio. Clarence is not a very religious man, and he would agree with me saying this. 
Uh, uh, Clarence is a former captain in the United States Navy, and he is a, a special agent for the Prudential Insurance Company. And he sold me lots of insurance. And he had called me the night before. Now, Clarence, uh, I had never known of him doing anything like this. He, my wife said, Clarence Gordon called you. You're supposed to call him. And I said, well, I know what he wants. He wants to sell me some more insurance. And I can't even pay for what I got now. I don't want to call him. Well, Clarence called me. And Clarence can read my simple mind. And so Clarence called me the next day. I didn't return his call, which is horrible. Always return your calls. You'll get caught. And <laughs> he called me and he said, Preacher, didn't you get my message? And I said, Clarence, I'm sorry. I said, <laughs> I, said I didn't call you back, but I've been very busy. Uh, and he said, well, the reason that I called you was that I wondered if you knew a student out there who could use a couple of hundred bucks. And I said, say that again real slow, Clarence. <laughs> and he said, do you know a student there who could use a couple of hundred dollars? And I said, Clarence, you have just answered a prayer. And he laughed. <laughs> and he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, there's a fellow here who had been in the Navy four years, and he wanted to go off to seminary, and he needed $150 to go to uh, pay the tuition. And he'd been to the post office twice, and it didn't come in. And uh, he said, uh, well, go find him. I went over, and he'd already paid his, his bills and was going to leave Montreat. And I caught him over in the cafeteria before he left. And I went up to him, and I said, Hampton, guess what happened? I said, I got a telephone call from a very unlikely source. And a man called me and said that the Lord had told him to call me and uh, not that the Lord had told him, but that he had called me to give me $200. And I said, the only explanation that I can figure out is that God is answering your prayer. And he said, you're kidding me. And I said, no, I'm not kidding you. I'm telling you the truth. I said, this is the first time this man ever gave me a dime. <laughs> I said, I thought he was wanting something. I didn't know he wanted to give anything. And uh, so we got in... Uh, uh, he came over where we were. He couldn't, he was just stunned. He couldn't hardly believe it. Then he went back to a little group of waitresses that were in, uh, they were very, they had on pink dresses. They were uh, waiting over in the uh, cafeteria. And he told them something. And I saw one of the girls break into tears and start sobbing. And I said, what's, when he came back, I said, what's the matter with that girl? And he said, well, we have been meeting for prayer every morning. And this morning we met for prayer, and the money hadn't come. And he said, uh, when I told her about this answer to prayer, I guess it was just too much for her. But you see here another answer to prayer. Now, people not only need an answer to prayer for their physical needs by money, but we as Christians have a responsibility to be ministers of God and servants of God in assisting people everywhere we go. When I think of uh, the little boy with the loaves and the fishes who gave them to Jesus, what a remarkable thing that was. And yet look how God used it and blessed it to his glory. And look how he can bless us to his glory too. Uh, Mrs. Graham the other night told us that she had returned from the West Coast in a dinner that was given in honor of Ethel Waters. And you know Ethel Waters is this marvelous Negro Christian who sings 
uh, when his eye is on the sparrow, I know he's watching me. And Ms. Graham told us that, that there were a thousand people present for this banquet in honor of this deeply committed Christian lady. And uh, one of the people there to honor her was Bob Hope, the comedian. And uh, she said that when Bob Hope was late getting there, and he said, uh, when he came in, he said, I knew I found the right banquet because I saw the caterer coming in with five loaves and two fishes. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, the Lord does use wonderful things like this. He can do great things like this, but he needs also people, and this is the second part, he needs also people who will bring us a strategic word of encouragement. If every person here could speak about the sorrow that some of you have known or the trouble through, some, through which some of you have passed and the suffering that you have gone through, the loneliness and the burden, everyone here would practically melt in tears if they had any heart at all. You don't know what I've heard, but you've heard others speak. Well, now let me tell you, God uses the school of suffering and sorrow. He uses that to make you a minister, to assist and to help someone else who may be going through trouble. I remember once in a hospital in Colorado Springs, committing to memory those marvelous verses from the first chapter of Paul's second letter to Corinth. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by that comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now, if you have received the comfort of God, then take it upon yourself to be a minister of comfort to someone else in trouble. Be a raven of comfort from your own experience of sorrow or suffering to them. We can help one another in this way. It's amazing how much strength we can bring to each other. And it's amazing also the lessons that we can learn of the love of Christ that will lead us to a deeper devotion to him. Elijah, we are told by the writer of the letter of James, was a man of like passions such as we are, but such a prophet of God that when he told the sun, to beat down in the rain, not to come, it did not come. And when he prayed for rain, rain fell, and God brought a harvest. And this startling, bold prophet of God was used of God mightily in his day because he yielded himself to him. His devotion speaks to us in how we can yield ourselves to God and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and from that dedication, bring a surprising blessing to someone else too. I, as I find myself getting older, I find myself watching sports more. And I think I figured it out. It's because I know that I'll never be able to play sports much anymore. And vicariously, I have to live through other athletes. And so I find myself clipping out and, and culling little articles of sports stories. And one of my favorites came to me from, uh, I've, I've had this a long time, a friend of mine gave it to me. I don't know if the name Ogmandino means anything to you, but Ogmandino is a famous track coach. 
And a few years ago, Ogmandino made history up in New England. And the way he did this was that he was track coach at a little college very few people had heard of called Fairfield College up in Maine. Well, Fairfield College developed a tremendous track team. In fact, their track team became so good and they won so many meets that they were invited to participate in the New England Intercollegiate Championship Track Meet, which is a tremendous meet. And so this little Fairfield College sent its athletes down from Maine. They were to go down to Cambridge, Massachusetts for this huge meet. There, when they got into the stadium, the stands were crammed full of 60,000 viewers to watch this meet. Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Boston University, Amherst, Wesleyan, all were there. And little Fairfield College was to compete. Well, Fairfield did very well. It tied Yale and got into the last event of the meet, which was to be the one-mile race. Now, the one-mile race, for those of you who have ever run the mile or those of you who have watched it, is a grueling race. I used to run the 880, and I'll never forget that old Texas coach who coached me. I said, Coach, how do you run this? He said, well, when you're on the blocks and the gun fires, he said, come out of the, off the blocks as fast as you can go till you get to the curve and then run faster the rest of the way. <laughs> well, that's the sure way to win. <laughs> well, uh, uh, little Fairfield College had, a, had, had two milers that were pretty good, and they had a fellow whose name was Tommy. Tommy had come out for track in his freshman year, his sophomore year, his junior year, and his senior year. And the interesting thing about him was that his greatest speed was four minutes and 30 seconds, which is not very impressive to track people. You see, in this meet, there were already people from Yale and Harvard that could run the mile. Back in that time, this was considered great timing in four, five, and four, six. Well, Ogmandino looked to two fellows, Don and Dick, big athletes over six feet tall, who could run like pictures and stride magnificently to win the meet for him. When they got into this last event, he went to find his two star milers. They were lying down on the grass, and their faces were as green as the grass because they had eaten something that had food poisoned them, and they were terribly sick. Well, the coach, as coaches do, got a stiff upper lip and a smile, and he went looking for Tommy. Well, he had only kept Tommy on the traveling team because he was such a radiant spirit that he made everyone else try. But he was a horrible runner. His form was impossible. He, he, he didn't run, he waddled. And, and the, coach, the coach didn't know what to do, but he was all he had left, so he went looking for Tommy and he found him. And he said, Tommy, Dick, and Don have eaten something. It's poisoned them and they're sick. You're the only person I've got who can run this mile. You've got to run it for it. Tommy looked up at the coach like he had been run over by a truck. He couldn't believe that the coach was actually putting him out there to run in this meet. And then he did a strange thing. He got down on his knees and he bowed his head and he made a prayer to God. Then he ripped off his warm-ups and he ran for the starting block. 
When the starter's gun cracked, Tommy came off the blocks, and the coach looked at him when he came off and turned his head. He couldn't bear to look at him. And he thought, why did I do this? Embarrass a poor guy in front of 60,000 people. I never should have let him run, and he looked the other way. And then Mandino said his own track team began yelling, look at Tommy, look at Tommy. And the coach turned around to look at Tommy. And Tommy was just a few yards in back of the Yale man who was supposed to win the race. Then the coach began to root for Tommy. <laughs> and as they came around, he gained on the Yale man, passed the Harvard man, and breasted the tape and won the meet in four minutes and four-tenths seconds. 4-4. Well, pandemonium broke loose in the stands. Who ever heard of Fairfield College? And down went Yale, Dartmouth, Amherst, Wesleyan, and Boston University, and all the rest. Well, they all grabbed for Tommy, and they rushed him into the locker room. And the coach set him down on the bench, and he tussled his hair and, and hugged him, and he began to talk to him. And he said, Tommy, do you know what you've done? You cut 26 seconds off of your best time. No one's ever done that. <laughs> the boy had great tears streaming down his face. And the coach said, you, you really gave us everything you had. And then he said, coach, the coach thought he was just nervous from the excitement of it all, and this was the reason for his tears. And he said, coach, I didn't win that today for you. And I didn't win it for the college. He said, I never told you about my dad. But my dad came home from World War II in a wheelchair. He always wanted me to run. And he used to tell me, Tommy, you stay in there. One day you're going to win a big race. And by the help of God, if you win a big race, I'm going to come out of this wheelchair and I'm going to walk again. He said, Dad never got to see me run. But he said, this morning I got a telegram from my sister. She said, hurry home. Dad has died. I have been trying to reach you by the telephone and have been unable to get you. He said, when you found me, I was debating on whether or not to leave the stadium and go on home. And when you said what you did to me, it made me think that I had to go out there and win this one for Dad. Well, now, the whole point of this story to me is this, that God Almighty unleashes in those who believe in Jesus Christ a sudden burst of passion which will lead them over tremendous obstacles when they are faithful to him because of their love for him. And the word of Elijah and the message of the ravens feeding him is that God cares for you. He has provided salvation for you through Christ on the cross, and he has provided comfort and strength for you if you are willing to live in obedience and trust to him. And by that love and trust and obedience, he will release in you power that you did not know you possessed, so that in turn you may bring a blessing to others. If you've never made a commitment of your life to Christ, I hope that you'll take a stand for Jesus Christ. You can go someplace today in a quiet place. 
And you can say to him, God, I want you to have all of me and Jesus to be Lord of all. It's interesting to me to say all I have belongs to God because all I have is all he wants. Let us stand and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that when we turn to Thee in worship, we can be strong again no matter what the circumstances may be. We thank Thee for reminding us that You do love us and care for those who live lives of obedience to You. Grant, O oh God, that we may be able to show forth Your love to others, to be a raven, of physical help to those who are in need and a raven of encouragement to those who are troubled and discouraged because we have yielded ourselves to the Lordship of Christ with all that we have and know. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our Keeper and our Guide be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.